Hi, everyone. Um, our first reading is from Genesis chapter 11, and the second reading is Acts 2, and we're going to stop at verse 12, so the end of page 7, and leave the rest on page 8 for you to ponder tonight. Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there, was, because there the Lord confused their language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all, the, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native tongue? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tiffany. What does it mean? What does it mean? Um, you can see why I put those, maybe you can see why I put those two passages together, namely that in the first passage they get together to glorify their own name and then God scatters them with different languages and in the second passage he gathers them, new followers of Jesus Christ, who are declaring the wonders of God, not the wonders of self, and God gives them not back one common language, but that they each hear each other in their own language. You can see how the two passages relate to each other, yeah? Well, that's it, by the way. That's the message. 
You can all go home. <laughs> Just joking. I've got some, some um, hard stuff today, by which I mean hard for me, not for you. Um, I'm going to try to parse secularism and how to live in a secular age, and that's complex in many ways, in many ways, and it will raise more questions for you than perhaps uh, answers. And to that end, I'm going to have a question time after the, after the message here, and we're going to have a microphone that goes around. So as, you, as you're listening, think, what question would I like to ask? Uh, because it's not easy, you know. Um, how do you approach an increasingly secular society? Do you get bolshy or do you lay down and let it happen? Do you pray or do you fight or do you, what do you do? You know, or do you, do you care? So we'll have a time of questions after the service. So that's the first reason why it'll be difficult because uh, I'm going to pass living in a secular age and I find that difficult. Um, this is the kind of sermon, by the way, where you don't have to write notes, by the way. I don't have tickets on myself. You may not want to write notes. But it's the sort of thing where I'll be saying a few things that you might want to refer to later in the message, and so if you feel like writing them down, feel free to do so. Second reason why it might be difficult is I'm going to ask the question which almost nobody asks, which is what does it mean to be human? We're all human. What does it mean to be human? I'm going to claim that when Jesus went to the tomb, he died for me and took me with that to, into that tomb. He took me down. Uh, and I deserve to go down, but he also took me with him onto the other side, and now the life he has, the life I have. And when I say that he took me to, to his death and his resurrection, that not only means that I got salvation, because I did, not only means I got forgiveness of sins, and I have them, which is amazing, not only do I have a resurrection hope, not just wishful thinking, but I also got my humanity back again. Because I'm going to argue what it means to be human is to be godlike, and what is it to be godlike is to be humble. So anyway, I give it all away. I give it all away. I'm going to pray again, and then we're going to pass this amazing text, Genesis 11, together. Let me pray. Father, we live in this world and no other. It's a real world, and we feel its uh, joy, and we feel its challenges every day. And yet, as followers of Jesus Christ, we belong to another kingdom, another king. Jesus Christ is our king, and there is no other besides him. We have died with him. We are raised, and we are now seated with him. Um, and so we pray that you give us his mind, give us your mind, give us a deep, abiding and real humility in this life. Cause it within us, Father, by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you hear nothing else from this talk, hear these four quotes, two are from the Bible. All four quotes have a being brought down and being lifted up theme, which is good because we're still in the Easter season. Board never lies. All of these four quotes are about humility. St. Augustine, he wrote, Do you wish to rise? Begin, he says, by descending. That's counterintuitive. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds. You have a dream. Lay first the foundation of humility. Now, how did St. Augustine know that? Second quote. Listen to Mary about God on the birth of Jesus. God has brought down rulers from their thrones. We're going to hear about one of them tonight. But he has lifted up the humble. Or James. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Go down before you are brought back up again by God. 
Or if you hear none of those, try Bono from U2. If you want to kiss the sky, you better learn how to kneel. So that's what we need to hear and understand today, tonight, cognitively, although I promise, I think it takes a lifetime to truly learn these things, and there are lots of factors that get in the way. And one of those factors is the temptation to buy the secular vision of life and not even know that's what you're doing. You just breathe the culture. So I want to talk about how to live in a secular age, how to be faithful to God in a culture that increasingly seeks to undermine God and with a, a, a boldness. How do you stand up against the crowd? We started that by looking at um, Noah a little while ago. And in the second half of the year, we're going to look at the book of Daniel, which is perfect for such a study. The word secular means not connected to God or religion. So if you've never been connected to God or religion, you might call yourself a secular person. It might be, you might never have used that word, but you might go, okay, I get it, that's what I am. It comes from a Latin word, which means worldly, this world, of a generation, temporal. In other words, not connected to another life, uh, an afterlife, uh, you know, a higher life in the sense of God or spiritual matters. It's related to the word which means mundane or ordinary. And that's not trying to be... Um, negative about the word secular, the, the point is, you, you know, to be secular is to construct your world without God to get on with ordinary life, um, not have high, high, higher thoughts about God, ordinary life, mundane life without reference to a religion. And so, for example, a secular school educates without reference to God. An example of that is International Grammar School down here in Ultimo advertises itself as a unique, independent, co-educational, secular school. That works in the inner West. A secular state is... I had a great chat to a pretty amazing economist this morning. He was telling me that France is a secular state in the sense that there's an attempt to genuinely construct the entire society, uh, government, I should say, not... I mean, people can be Christian, of course. Notre Dame proves that. Um, but the, the attempt is to create government without reference to God at all, is what he told me. But in the Australian circumstance, a secular state is a state which purports to be officially neutral, which is what our government is, in matters of religion, even if there's a history there of Christianity and even the Church of England in, the, in previous centuries. The government supports neither religion any one kind or all of them, nor does it support irreligion. It remains hands-off. Now, Christians have a very funny relationship with secularity, and this is, I, I think, yeah, this is the, yeah. three things, the reason why we have a, a funny relationship, a, a difficult relationship with secularity. First, we say, this might be new for you, we say there's no such thing as secular. It's an impossible endeavor to try to construct a world without God. It can't be done, we say. We appeal to verses like Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world is the Lord's and all who live in it. In other words, it's actually impossible 
to disconnect from God, even if you tried, you might say you are, you're not in the Christian worldview. You can't disconnect God from his creation. You can't leave God out of it, even if you tried. Therefore, we say there isn't a secular and sacred divide. Here's sandstone walls, and here we are in church, and you walk in with your shoulders hunched over, and you say, can I take a photograph? You go, why? Well, it's sacred. No, no. This is sacred, and everything outside, do whatever the heck you want, you know, with yourself, or your government, or your dreams, or your body. Now, we don't have that divide uh, in the Christian message. And therefore, all things are spiritual, and nothing is mundane. All things belong to God. All things spiritual. Breakfast. Justice. Sex. Nothing mundane, all important to God. The only question is, does the thing to conform to God's good, perfect, good and perfect will, or doesn't it? I mean, I make divides between people either, the priest and the plowman, equal in God's world, doing his work. Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and everybody who lives in it belongs to him. No such thing as secular. Second, we like it. We like secular. I like secular. I want neutral government, to be perfectly honest. We do not want our government to promote any one religion. I don't. Um, Because I'll tell you why, you know, they go and support mine and then, you know, in two decades' time they support another one. Do Do I want that? I don't want that. I don't, I certainly don't want my government to enforce a Christian agenda because I don't want them to enforce an Islamic one either, quite frankly. And the reason we believe that is not just because I don't want another version. The reason I believe that is because I don't believe that's how the kingdom of God is promoted. It's promoted not through the enforcing of agendas, but rather through one heart changed, given a new heart, new spirit, in communities that provide lights in a dark world. But I don't believe that there's such a thing as secular either, so I want the Christian worldview to interact with the secular one if such a thing exists. But we Christians agree that churches and government should not be conflated. We recognize the devastation historically that comes as a result of such a conflation. We know our history. We know our present. You know, when the mayor of Jakarta can be charged for blasphemy... I don't want that. And what's more, when things function in a generally civil way, we love it. We benefit from good government, whether it's Christian or not, and good elected representatives, whether they're Christian or not. We, you know, I like it when they're Christian. I like it when they put their hand up. But that's not, this is not the reason why. I like roads, hospitals, and schools to function. I want them all to be safe. I want there to be justice to be done in our society. I pay my taxes. I want to pay my taxes because uh, I benefit from society. Now, if the next government on May 18 said it was going to impose Christianity, it's likely to be the opposite, I think. But <laughs> if it said it wanted to impose a belief system on us instead of being generally secular, well, I'd be very nervous. I'd think about moving to New Zealand if they'll have me. 
That's the second reason. The third reason is that we struggle with secularism, recognising there's a contest of ideas in our society, a contest between those who believe in God and those who don't, those who believe in miracles, as I do, and those who don't, those who honour God and those who dishonour him, those who build his kingdom and those who oppose it. There's a contest between those who say the best will come at his appearing when he puts the world to rights and those who say, honestly, this is all there is. This is all there is. I'm telling you, if there is no God, this is all there is. And please don't pretend otherwise. And if there's a contest between ideas of those who believe those things, then those who say that this is all there is, well, it will have an inevitable drive towards, at best, materialism. Get it now. Because there is no then. Get your house, see the world, because, you know, one day you're going to die. I don't get it, by the way. Um, you know, it's people who say, oh, I've got, a, I've got a bucket list before I die. I'm like, you know, there's nothing on your bucket list that won't, if you're in Christ, there's nothing on your bucket list that you won't see it's, what it's pointing to in the new heavens and the earth. New heavens and the earth. I think bucket lists are pagan. I think if you have a bucket list, you don't believe in the resurrection. You know, sorry if you have one. I just offended you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or here's another one. Ashley Madison, which is that website designed for hooking up married people. So it's for affairs only. Their tagline was, um, life is short, have an affair. Which when that whole hoo-ha came out, I, I, I tweeted them, I reject the premise Therefore, the conclusion. But it truly secular, construct a world without God, then it, there's a drive towards materialism. Get it now. Get it now. At worst, it becomes utilitarianism because we promote, really, those who are valuable for society now. There's no outside worth that comes from God, no inherent human dignity, except what we just sort of say because we've got the vestiges of Christianity, but not really, not absolutely or objectively. And so societies that have moved down this path have been disastrous. They discard those who are not valuable. Even our own society, we have bought those uh, that, are, that will be too much for us. At its most demonic, it results in totalitarianism. I watched Schindler's List last week and you know when you want to create your own utopia um, be very careful right? with your own rules that you want to enforce you'll end up wanting conformity uh, over all things and you're all in the name of the good order of society peace of course now this series is called um, six rules for work and life uh, bumped by three weeks for my illness thanks for for bearing with me when I say six rules for work and life, I mean not in the sense of rules to be obeyed, rather biblical principles that make sense of what we do. And today is the last rule for work and life from Genesis 11, and it's be cynical about secularism. Go ahead and be cynical about it. Don't be cynical about God. That's very easy. Just listen to the world around you. Breathe the air. Read the papers. Read the comment section. That's where you get it. I want to say trust God. 
don't be cynical about God, but be, feel very free to be cynical about secularism. I drove up this morning and thought, nah, I don't think the word cynicism is right. I don't like the word cynical because it doesn't treat the person, idea, or institution with dignity. So maybe the principle should be something like this. Enjoy our particular version of secular government. You live in Australia? Thumbs up. But resist, really, resist a new vision of secular life. A version of secular government? Thumbs up. Vision of secular life? Thumbs down. Because it's hubris creep. And I'll show you why from Genesis 11. Three questions, same three questions for the series. They're on page nine of your zines. First, what's the narrative here in Genesis 11? The story of the Tower of Babel is drop-dead fascinating, a study in building a society without God. It's a tale of the first secular state, if I can put it this way, where in this sort of narrative, the whole world has a common language and they get together and the key is in verse four, let us make a tower, a big one that reaches the heavens, that we may make a name for ourselves. And we'll say, look, aren't we glorious? Aren't we amazing? And you look at it and you think, well, what's wrong with that? A city and then a tower in it? My four-year-old says to me, um, do you know what they call tall buildings? And I say, what's that? And she says, skyscrapers. She's four, skyscrapers. And I say, have you ever read my text for Sunday night? <laughs> we, read, we build towers that scrape the skies. St. Augustine, you plan a tower that will pierce the clouds, first lay the foundation of humility. Verse 2, the plain of Shinar is a place where, much later, the city of Babylon would be built. A city throughout the narrative of Scripture stood for the rejection of God, despite its glory, beauty, and power. Uh, a city that will end up being destroyed in the book of Revelation. It becomes shorthand for evil and all injustice and opposition towards God, and it gets discarded for the new Jerusalem. It gets judged. In other words, evil, injustice, and opposition towards God gets judged before God puts the world to rights in Jesus at the renewal of all things. It's a tale of caution. One language, common speak, Comes fertile ground for totalitarian regimes. All such regimes know the power of a simple message understood by the masses with an appeal to base desires. Look, we'll make a name for ourselves. Everyone involved in this project will be important. Look what I have done. This tower. And also to base fears. We'll build a city and then we'll be safe. Um, God said, in Genesis 1 and 2, fill the earth and subdue it. Trust me. You fill the earth. Uh, they said, no, no, let's gather in one spot so we can't be scattered by God or anybody else. You know, what is it, Titanic? God couldn't sink this ship. Let's be in one place, a city. In other words, trust no one. Trust self. Uh, trust society. It's a tale also of technology. Verse 3, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly and they use brick instead of the old stone and bitumen or tar instead of mortar. This is the latest technology. Look what they can do. A tower, a sense of the heavens, a rival to the gods, a symbol of greatness and safety. So what's wrong with it? <laughs> We're building towers all the time. Walk outside. 
And the answer is uh, that it's built without reference to God. Uh, it is here a symbol of hubris we can't be taken down. It's a particular kind of humanism, not that they would have used those words. Not the Christian humanism of the Renaissance, where we say we have in- each person has inherent dignity before God made in his image. And this is summed up in the man Jesus Christ, where you find your true humanity. But what is here is this sort of arrogant humanism. We're great. Um, let's make humanity great again. That we'll do it without God. Now, on that same plane of Shinar, centuries later, in the sixth century before Christ, a king would build a city called Babylon and a palace for his own glory. Listen to Daniel chapter 4, verse 8. We'll come back at this at the end of the year, second half of the year. As king, this is from the Bible. As King Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his royal palace, he looks out. And he says this, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I achieved it. What happened to him in Daniel 4? Well, the one who lifted himself higher than God was brought low. See, the one who exalts himself will be humbled. And in Nebuchadnezzar's case, he was driven mad put on all fours, driven mad, drunk on his own um, self, sense of self. And later in Daniel 4, in a lovely way, he's given his humanity back again. And the way it's described is God lifted him up and put him back on his two, on his hind feet, <laughs> hind legs. He put him back on two feet again. In other words, he got his humanity back again. Secondly, second question, how is this fulfilled in Jesus? And the answer is, Jesus is my humanity. He is humanity with God. Read a gospel. Uh, He is my approval, so I don't need to make a name for myself. Um, He's embraced me. He's my safety, too. I don't have to secure it for myself. He is my king in the city to come, not my Nebuchadnezzar, but um, my Messiah. And Jesus said himself, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That's Babel living. It's inhuman. By the way, you've seen it too, that person at work that has narcissistic sort of tendencies, and you're like, there's something not... I mean, this person's made in the image of God, and I believe that because, because God declared it in Scripture, and therefore I treat, I, you, know, I, you know. But you look at it and you say, there's something not, not humane, is the word we use, for what they're doing or the way they treat people. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself, said Jesus, will be exalted or lifted up. That's what it means to be human, to humble yourself before God. If you want to kiss the sky, to touch the sky, uh, you've got to learn how to kneel. St. Augustine said also, no one reaches the kingdom of heaven except by humility. There's no other way than on your knees. 
That's why Jesus says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, (laughs) uh, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you change. I'd use the word convert, convert, if it didn't have so many triggers for you. Unless you're changed, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you don't know what that means, by the way, ask someone near you. Well, Jesus told a story to sort of frame up what it sort of looks like. Um, He said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, a secular vision of life can't be true of material things only. The story goes like this. The ground, ask yourself what's wrong. Like building the Tower of Babel. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? No place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my small barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, like most Australians say when they're thinking about, you know, nest eggs and security, I'll say to myself, and in the, in the original Greek, I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Put your thumbs up, eat, drink, and be merry. It's the secular or materialist version, vision of life. But God said to him, said Jesus, God said to him, you fool, Strong language. You know why? You're foolish. You fool. This very night your soul will be required from you. You're going to meet God. When you read the story in Luke, it's hard to know what the man did wrong. He worked hard like you work hard. Got a windfall, which some of you might have had. He didn't squander it like some people did. I mean, he didn't go gambling. You know, stuff it up on, you know, alcohol snort drugs he just made sure it didn't go to waste built bigger barns just makes sense good economic sense I mean you know when people use the word future proof as if such a thing exists I mean that's what the guy's doing so that he can put his feet up and say look self-funded retiree what's wrong Read that story in light of the Tower of Babel. Read that story in light of Nebuchadnezzar and you begin to see the problem. What he has here is the kingdom of self over the kingdom of God. Now, I'll be able to simply eat and drink and be merry and satisfy my own desires. Jesus says he's rich towards self, not rich towards God. Jesus came, I take it, to save us from such a life. And Jesus came been singing about that. Get this, in the story of the Tower of Babel, God came down. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. By the way, there's a joke in the Hebrew. Uh, Tiffany read to us. I didn't hear any belly laughing. Perhaps, Tiffany, you could work on your delivery. Maybe. (laughs) Just jokes. (laughs) I mean, it's not belly laugh humor, but there's humor in the Hebrew, namely that they built this tower to reach the heavens and God had to come down to have a look at it. A little further. Can someone pass me a magnifying glass? Ah, yes. I can see it, that little tower. That's the joke in the Hebrew. Had to come a long way down. Now, but close enough to see 
this great tower that they had built. And then he scatters them according to his plan to fill the earth, and he gave them an impediment to totalitarian thinking, namely language barriers. And loads of language teachers had jobs for the next thousands of years. But there's a merciful thing in the breaking down of their languages. Uh, it allows them, in some sense, to be confused and to not know what's going on it makes it harder for despots and dictators. Thousands of years later, God came down again. This time not to judge, but to save. Thousands of years later, God came down again in the life of Jesus Christ. He came down from the heights of heaven to Mary's womb, where Mary will say, he brought down rulers from their thrones, Habakkuk, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar, but he has lifted up the humble, of which he will be the first resurrection. Jesus went down further still, beyond Mary's womb, to sit and eat with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes who wanted to hear him, and I'm glad he did because I count myself among them. He ate with the wrong sort. He went down further still to a cross, a bloody Roman cross. The Apostle Paul says he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In Philippians 2, it says, being in nature God, he humbled himself. You hear me? And that's because when Jesus came down and he went to the cross, he was showing us what kind of God God is. This is the sort of humility that resides in God. That means humility, by the way, predates matter. So does love, by the way. <laughs> it's the sort of humility that resides in the one true God who showed himself only through Jesus Christ. That's the sort of God the true God is. Jesus died on that cross to unite me to that God and give me a new life, a new set of tracks to take me away from the kingdom of self, no longer, God willing, curved in on self, but rather curved outwards to others and upwards towards God, not the kingdom of self, but the kingdom of God from darkness to light. And he gave me his spirit and a community, Acts chapter 2, not dedicated in its best form, not dedicated to making a name for itself, but rather upholding the name of Jesus Christ, not curved in on self, but outwards towards others, upwards towards God. Brought, God brought together a community after the resurrection of Jesus, and on the day of Pentecost, where he gave them his spirit, he didn't obliterate language or culture, but rather took away the part that was confusing, because each one heard the wonders of God, not the wonders of self, being spoken in their own language. Which is why in Revelation, God has... Uh, Christ has, with, was slain and with his blood he purchased men and women from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. He came down, this time not to judge humanity, but to give us our humanity back again in all its God-given cultural glory. You see, a humanity only found in Jesus Christ. I tell you, they discovered this by reading the scriptures during the Renaissance. Ask my wife, this is her specialty. I'm above my pay grade when I say that. Thirdly and finally, what is the rule for life? Well, I think the rule is resist a vision for secular life. Be happy, thumbs up about the, a version of secular government, but not a vision for secular life. A version of secular government, thumbs up. Um, I think our secular government, neutral about religion, is actually part, a product of Christianity, in part. Uh, because Christians have said it along, um, sin 
resides in the human heart, you get us all together and we create beasts, Revelation. That's what we do. So power should be spread, spread thin, separation of powers, not concentrated. You know, you sort of want government to be slow. I mean, not too slow. The people who need help need help. But you want them to be slow on one level. Fast governments, like, eek, oh. <laughs> you don't want governments to get bigger than their people and try to enforce an agenda, remove freedoms, to assemble, for example, freedom of religion. You don't want them enforcing a religion or even a set of beliefs uh, that really is a, a religion um, framed really as, as, as a secular vision for life. I thank God that governments and religion aren't conflated, so enjoy our particular version of secular government. It might not last, I'm going to quote for you in a moment. But there's something else too, it's called human hubris creep where a secular version of government becomes a secular vision for life. I've got to tell you, it ends up being total. And that's when secular people start sounding religious. And when they do that, I get nervous, especially when they have power to control all. I want that. They want it for Christians. Don't want it. Because it has at its heart a human pride. It's get together, throw off the shackles of God, get rid of these ancient texts, they're stupid anyway, and exclude religious people from polite society, stay in your own space, say what you want at church, but don't get there in the public space while we build our perfect society. Mark Twain warned, human pride is not worthwhile, there's always something lying in wait to take the wind out of it. I'll tell you what, take the wind out of it, the judgment of God. Greg Sheridan is hardly shrill in this space. He's not sort of a cultural warrior, but he, I don't think he is, but he writes interesting reflections in the Australian from time to time. He wrote this, for a time, Australia will continue to live off the declining ethical and cultural capital of our heritage of 2,000 years of Christianity and 3,000 years of Judaism, or Judeo-Christian tradition. But as British writer Arnold Lund once remarked, we are living off the scent of an empty vase cut ourselves off evermore comprehensively from the roots of our civilization and our civilization will be more damaged. Do I want the new secularists to frame up a vision? We don't need God, no judgment, no heaven or hell. Stop saying that. Your Bible's a hate document. We can be great again on our own without reference to a holy God who judges. Go ahead, be yourself. I want to say be suspicious, be cynical even. Secular people are cynical of Christianity. I think we ought to be cynical not of secular people. Oh no, human dignity doesn't allow it. But I think we ought to be suspicious of secularism. Not rising to fight with a sword or shrill comments or poking, but rather with humility and community and an alternative life of love and by prayer and persuasion, not arrogantly, but rather with a Christ-inspired humility. St. Augustine again, do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds. Lay first the foundation of humility. Let me pray and then we'll do some questions. Father, the humble life uh, is, I believe, some, we believe something that comes because it emanates directly from your heart. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, um, with love and humility towards each other, that's why we are attracted to humble people and, and um, get nervous about people with deep hubris and arrogance. 
Um, perhaps we recognize that now or perhaps from time to time in our own hearts. And so we pray that you'll give us our humanity back again. Show us Jesus Christ who died for us and was raised again, took, us, took the worldly self into that tomb and brought us out the other side with a new hope and a new start, new life. Help us to interact in our society with, with, with joy and grace and humility, but um, presenting really the, your wonders rather than the wonders of self or society. Uh, give us this, Father. Give us, give us this, this, your vision for life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.